It isn't. Now it is. <laughs> Sorry about that. Now it is on, and we are off. Welcome to this retreat. I want to say, first of all, my uh, my thing that always is prominent in my mind to start to start with, which is, I hope that in my lifetime we stop making a difference between a mindfulness retreat and a meta retreat, because it is all mindfulness. This is uh, the, the, the Buddha taught in his sermon on the foundation of mindfulness. He talked about paying attention in four different ways. And he said, pay attention in any one of these ways and really, you'll really come to see what's true. What's true about how life evolves, what's true, at what are the patterns of how your life and mind are evolving. And when you see what's true, the the confusion in the mind goes away, our own goodness and wonderfulness manifests, and we live happily. One of the people that I met coming on retreat the, just this afternoon, we were walking in, and uh, as a person that I know for a long time who's been on retreat many times, and uh, she said, uh, I have a very good feeling coming here even before we start because being on retreat is happifying. And, that's a, and I thought, that's a great word. I'll just say that in the beginning. This is happifying practice. So that's not exactly grammar, but you get the sense of happifying. The happifying is not because it's uh, necessarily fun or funny to be doing this because it's quite serious practice, but it's practice that's really aimed at developing that steadiness of mind that clears the mind of confusion and allows wisdom to manifest. When wisdom manifests, our own good heart manifests and we behave in the most kind and... Uh, I would say friendly way. I'm particularly saying friendly because um, the, 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 the definition, the translation of the word metta, metta comes from a Pali or a Sanskrit-derived word, and they all mean friendly. It's connected to the spirit of friendliness. So it sounds um, more uh, perhaps... Um, uh, mysterious to say I'm going on a meta retreat than it would to be I'm going on a friendliness retreat. <laughs> Maybe it sounds like a Boy Scout camp or a Girl Scout camp. I, uh, but really it's friendliness retreat and it's really the ultimate in friendliness what we're practicing here. We're practicing with the hope that we will begin to befriend ourselves in the most intimate and complete way that we can and really have... Um, what my, my family used to have a good heart on other people. It's a translation from Yiddish. They would say in Yiddish, someone says, he has a good heart on everyone. That's what we're trying to practice, having a good heart on everyone. Because we have a good heart on the people we like quite easily. That's what happens. But just because that's part of the species, we have affinities, we meet people that we care about and like and are attracted to, and then we have a good heart towards them. We wish them well, we wish them safety and contentment and uh, strength and ease in their lives. We wish it for ourselves, too, if we're not embittered by ourselves. 
it gets harder when we don't know the people. And it gets especially hard when we know the people and we don't like them. And so it's really an incredible practice to say, this is the practice that's going to really enable us not to like everybody in the world, because we don't, but not to have a not good heart on everyone, to have a good heart on everyone. Not because uh, we're going to get a prize from it from somebody, or not even because we're going to change those people, but because it's a pleasure to have a good heart on everyone. You don't have to complicate your mind with separateness and bitterness. There's a first line of a particular uh, chant, it's a loving-kindness chant, that begins, May I be free of enmity and danger. And when I first heard it years ago, I thought it had to do with, may I have no enemies coming after me and the danger that I might feel if I had enemies and they came after me. But uh, it came to me clearly in the years since then that uh, the danger that I was in was not from enemies outside of myself, but enmity inside of myself that, I am, that, uh, that has the possibility of making me unhappy, making me confused, making me frightened, making me ill at ease, making me feel at a distance from everybody in this world. So it's really quite, quite true to think that this is a practice in which we hope to feel, have a good heart on the world. A friend of mine told me a great story just recently. In this, uh, in this uh, season of graduations and matriculations and, uh, in some case, uh, resignations, a friend of mine was um, leaving his tenure of dean at a certain college, and um, there was a, a party in honor of his stepping down, and many of his friends uh, spoke about how remarkable he'd been as a person and what a wonderful educator. And his daughter, uh, now in her late 20s, talked about uh, her view of her father since she was a child. She said lovely things about him. And she said, you know, when I was 12 years old, uh, my father was helping me with my homework one night. We were working on the homework in the dining room, and the phone rang, and he answered it. And it was a telemarketer. And I could tell it was a telemarketer from the conversation that I heard And I listened to my father, and he was so kind with that person, and he spoke with them, and he, in a kind way, said, in essence, after they pushed, that he really didn't want to buy the product, and he wished them well. And she went on to say that uh, she said to him at that point, uh, how is it that uh, they're so annoying, those telemarketers and busting in in everybody's house? And you were so kind to them. And he said back to me, don't you think we shouldn't try to be kind every chance we get? And she said, that was so important to me because he said, don't you think? And he really, really wanted to know what I thought about it. And I felt remarkable because I felt like I was a person whose opinion he was interested in at that point. So the whole story up to that is I thought, well, there's going to be another end to that story. I'm going to think this is a wonderful story. Uh, 
that I treasured, if I were this person's daughter, that I would treasure my whole life. I think it's wonderful that she treasured that story because he thought enough of her to ask her what she thought. I think I would treasure that story as well because I would love to have a father that said to me, don't you think it's important, it's worthwhile to try to be kind every chance we get. What a legacy to pass down to people. People say to the Dalai Lama now, they say, what is Buddhism? Uh, is, is, is it a religion? He said, yes, it's a religion. He said, is it your religion? He said, my religion is kindness. And you think about it. Sometimes I think it's a little bit, um, it sounds, it might be mistaken for being simple. And sometimes when you want to say, well, maybe you don't have something wonderful to say about somebody, you say, well, well they're very kind. I actually would like for people to think I was really very kind. Not because, again, because people would admire me, but if people thought that, and I really was, I'd be a happy person. So it's a whole long detour to tell you why I think this practice is in fact happifying. That if in my mind, my mind is peopled by persons towards whom I can feel I can be friendly, they're my friends, then I'll be a happy person. I'll actually live in a neighborhood of peace. Really what this is, is an extraordinary practice of quieting the mind so that we get to understand profoundly what the Buddha meant by wisdom. I thought it would be a very good beginning for this retreat in the way of a ritual beginning, to read the Metta Sutta together, the Buddha's teaching on loving kindness. You might have picked one up as you came in the door. We're going to use this as a uh, proof text for the rest of our time together. You know, one of the things that I think about this particular sutta, I always have it with me. I probably know it by heart, but I always have it with me when I travel, uh, both to read to people or with people, because I think that it has the entire um, dharma of the Buddha, the whole practice of Buddhism in this one page and a half of sermon. It includes a part that says, this is... uh, This is ethics practice. This would be a good way to behave. It includes a part, the middle part of it, that says, this is mind training practice. This is the way you train your mind. And it includes the end of it, which says, this is what will happen to you if you do this practice. It will result in wisdom. I love it that it begins with the phrase, this is what should be done. It's so authoritative. It doesn't say he is... Here's a good idea, maybe it'll be work. And in these kind of troubled times, who knows what's going to, what it's going to take to fix up this world. It's wonderful to have something that says, this is what should be done, do it. I always think when I, when I say that line of the, uh, of the uh, sweatshirt that somebody gave me for a Mother's Day present, when I guess, I don't know, somebody in my family gave me it, decades ago when my children were young 
And uh, it said, uh, because I'm a mommy, that's why. And it was the answer to, why should I do it? You know, because, I mean, who says that I should do it? I said, how come? Because I'm a mommy, that's why. But for someone in authority to say, this is what should be done. And to end up by saying, the person who does that is not born again into this world. And I'm not taking it necessarily to mean birth and rebirth in subsequent lifetimes, but reborn from moment to moment into a mind and a life of suffering. That at any moment in this life, we could exit the mind of suffering and not be reborn into it again, be liberated in this very lifetime. That would be a marvelous thing. I think that's the practice. So it sounds in a certain way, oh, it's about kindness, it's about friendship, it's about liberation, it's about freedom. And it's very ordinary. And I actually think the entire instruction for liberation is in these two pages. Every single line of it is another important instruction. Donald and I have decided that we're going to try to teach and uh, talk about practice using this sermon as we go along in these three days that we have, almost three days that we have together. I'm so excited about that, by the way. Don't you like the idea of a three-day retreat? It's great. It's long enough to really do something. And you can just fit it into your life without anybody noticing it. It's a great thing. I, I, I remember telling people, you know, when they said, how come you were able to go on retreat so much when your children were young? I said I went on a lot of retreats, but not long retreats. I went a week or ten days, but you know, I, but you know, I, I had a I had a, a a profession that I was keeping up at the same time. I said I came and I went. I fit my I fit my practice into my life. No one ever noticed it. And when my you know, then growing up and then grown up children would hear me talk after a, a talk, they would meet me afterwards and say, you know, great teaching, Mom. And we noticed it. So, but this is easy. This nobody could notice. Let's read this together. Nobody could notice it, but you could really do something in these three days. That's the beginning of the firing up with zeal part of this talk. So that comes later. Let's read this together. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness, and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle of speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened by duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, 
or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. I love that. I just, there isn't a line in it that I couldn't reflect on or talk about for a long time. When I was thinking this afternoon about how I wanted to start tonight, I thought about the line, this is said to be the sublime abiding, because it's not so clear what the this is referring to. Is the this referring to just so should we cherish all beings? Is this referring to not, uh, wish, not wishing harm on any being? Is this referring to living in a way uh, that the wise would never reprove? What's the sublime abiding? Is it the words, the two words that seem to me so key in this whole sutta, the two words, omitting none, Omitting none is what makes this practice complicated. Because we could pretty well say, you know, I wish well to all beings in the world, except (laughs) for this one and that one and the other one that have seriously wounded me in some way or about whom I'm seriously frightened. How can I wish them well? I like to start by saying it's not even thinking about wishing well, thinking about not wishing ill, because it's wishing ill that hurts so much in the mind. I'd like to wish well with an unbounded heart. I'd like to have that vision that actually all the time recognizes that everyone is having a challenged time in this life and that everyone is doing the best they can. That's really what the Buddha taught. Everybody is just like themselves. They couldn't be other. When I remember that, I'm really much kinder than when I forget. That's really the wisdom of the Buddha. That's really what we're meant to. It's the wisdom of anybody's clear mind. So the other story I wanted to tell you, because it just happened to me, I I was in France several weeks ago, and I was with a group of people um, whom I thought I knew well. They're my friends there, and I, uh, my husband and I bicycle with them a lot. 
people about our age. It's a club of cyclists. And we were having dinner together, and it became clear that it, somehow it came up in the conversation that um, a man I, I'd known for a while mentioned that he'd been adopted as a child. And I said, really? I didn't know that, Michelle. He said, yeah, I was adopted when I was six months old. I was in an orphanage until then. I was born in 1944, and uh, I was in, in, in the north of France. And I was in an orphanage until I was six months old. And uh, my mother and father were uh, people who... Uh, my mother was very devout, and uh, um, she wasn't able to have children of her own. And it pained her a lot that there were children in orphanages, so she adopted me. And then she adopted my brother and two sisters after me, also from that. And I said, oh, when did they explain to you that you were adopted? He said, well, they didn't explain. I was 14 years old, and I was playing the guitar with my friends in a band in a club in town. And after we finished playing, someone came up and said, "Uh, Michelle, uh, I heard from my parents that you were adopted. So I said, what did you do? He said, well, I went home that night and I said to my parents, was I adopted? And they said, yeah, you were. I said, what did you do? He said, well, I said, okay. And then I continued with my life. <laughs> so I said, uh, did you ever try to find your real mother? He said, no, that was my real mother. She was the one who took care of me. She was a wonderful mother. That was my real father. And I thought to myself, then I said, uh, did you ever wonder about why your birth mother gave you up for it, put you in the orphanage? He said, no, not so much. He said, you know, it was 1944. It was terrible times in France. Everybody was so poor. Nobody had anything to eat. He said, I don't know who my father was. Maybe he was married to my mother. Maybe he was an American soldier. Maybe he was a British soldier. Maybe he was a German soldier. Maybe he was passing through. But everybody was in a terrible state at that time. So I figured if she put me in the orphanage, then she needed to do it. He said, you know, I'm never, I've never been a judgmental person. He said, I figure if somebody does something, they have reasons for it. So I thought about that. We're just having dinner, and Michel has not meditated, and he hasn't heard of the Buddha, and I don't think that he spent a lot of time cultivating non-judgmental mind, but he has a mind that is non-judgmental because he says everybody has reasons for what they do. So I'm not judgmental. I never know what the reasons are for what people do. I really wished I could keep his mind all the time. So I have a mind that tends more to that other line in the sutta that says, by not clinging to fixed views. My mind has views. I'm working on not being stuck with them so that I will remember more than I do. The possible freedom of a non-judgmental mind, of giving everyone the benefit of the doubt, of wishing well for all people, of treating everyone with kindness. How that relates to the practice that we do here is so clear to me. I don't think about the practice as a technique. People say, oh, mindfulness, you breathe. 
metta practice, you think, you, you repeat certain phrases of blessing. Well, that's true. But, but we do those things because they produce a certain kind of mind. We bring the attention to the breath, breath after breath, if that's comfortable for us. Because if we do that, the mind settles down, clarity arises, and wisdom accrues, that's all. If I repeat a certain phrase of well-wishing, my mind settles down from the benevolence of the phrases. And when it settles down, it sees those same truths. Everyone is challenged. Everything happens because of reasons. I can't know those reasons. To hold anybody out of my heart is the cause of pain. It's not complicated. So we do those practices because they're techniques that tend in the direction of the mind settling down, waking up, and feeling its own kindness. That's what we're going to do all week here, all weekend here, which is a short time, but also a marvelous amount of time for really intense practice. If I didn't say something that I meant to say, Donald will say it now. Uh, we know each other very well, so I know what he forgot to say, and he knows what I forgot to say. But I really wanted to say that's what we're doing here, and why. We, and the practices that we will do will lead us in that direction. I'm also very glad that you came, because if you didn't come, I couldn't come. And I'm actually looking very forward to this week, three days of practice with you. Mm. Thank you, uh, Sylvia, and I'm also uh, very happy to be here and see a lot of uh, familiar faces and a number of faces of people who I'm just meeting here, and want to just uh, begin with um, an expression of loving kindness towards our bodies, which have been in one posture for some time now. So I want to just invite us, if you need to, just to stand up for a minute or so, maybe a minute or two. So I'm also very much uh, looking forward to being here, and we're, we're actually intending, in some ways, for this to be like a retreat for us. We're intending to be in the hall for every sitting, and uh, to be here all the time with everyone, and 
And, and I was also reflecting that um, for some of you, um, three days is a lot. It may, how many people have not uh, done a retreat for as long as three days? Right? So it can seem like a lot. I remember when I did my first all-day retreat, it was very imposing. And um, afterwards, it, it felt pretty good, but it, it, it can feel like a lot. And there may be other, I know there are others of you who maybe have done a lot of retreats, maybe long retreats, and you may be feeling three days. Mm. Well, <laughs> hope it's okay, but it's kind of short. And um, two, two thoughts on that. Um, one is that there's something very uncanny about the process by which we open and transform. And we're doing this practice, which is really based, I think, very much as Sylvia was suggesting, it's based on the understanding that our hearts are good and that we can incline towards the quality of kindness and warmth being felt more and more strongly and being expressed more and more clearly and being more and more pervasive in our lives. And that, that this practice is really possible because what we find when we go most deeply is that we find that our basic nature is kind what the Dalai Lama meant, my religion is kindness. He's saying, we want to remember that in our most fundamental nature, when we're not scared or startled or um, still working out maybe wounds from the past, there's actually uh, radiance and beauty and kindness and wisdom. And it's that very simple truth which which is the basis for our practice both in the beginning and in the end. And what that means is that it's there already. A metaphor that's often used is is that our hearts and our minds are like the sun or the moon that get covered over by clouds. But the sun and the moon are there. And what that means is that it really doesn't matter whether it's one hour or three days or three months, that we can um, access, move towards accessing that, uh, that good heart, that good wise heart. And there is something very strange in my experience, uh, both as a practitioner and as uh, a teacher, in that um, there can be a lot that happens in this time. It's very, very interesting. It's like there's some kind of strange inner time mechanism which says, okay, three days. Okay, here's, here's how to do it. Okay. <laughs> and, and so it's uh, very, very, it's, it's sweet. It's sweet and um, we're going to encourage you to, to use this time very fully and want to be here with you uh, with that fullness. I was also reflecting on the, um, just the simplicity, really, of this practice. This practice is about inclining 
our minds and hearts towards a wise kindness. That's it. Moment by moment, we do that. It's a practice because we incline over and over, moment by moment, and we need really to train ourselves to do that more and more. You know, as we get further in the training, in our daily lives, we find that kind of warmth and kindness more and more just present without needing to try. You know, and for many of us, much of our lives has also, we could say, been a kind of training or been a kind of practice. But here we also have a methodical, methodical training, very simple. And I was, I was reminded this morning of a story. I was listening to some on the radio this morning and one of my former teachers named Robert Lifton was on the radio uh, being interviewed by Chris Welch with KPFA. Chris practices here. I, don't, I hope that doesn't blow her cover at KPFA. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a political station and so yeah. forth. But in any case... Um, uh, Robert Lifton has uh, been a, a writer, he's a psychiatrist, he has been a human rights activist, he's done groundbreaking work about the, how to work with um, collective trauma. Worked with uh, survivors of Hiroshima and uh, worked with war veterans. He's done a lot of very beautiful work. And what really has impressed me about him is that there, there's going into all that really, really difficult material, very much like Sylvia's story, what's come out is a simple, basic kindness, moment to moment. Quite incredible when you think of that background. I was thinking of a story that my mother told me. She went to hear a talk by him and he had given the talk and there was a, the first question to most people in the audience, it was clear that the questioner um, didn't really understand the talk. And there was, I heard there was kind of a collective groan that came across the audience. And people were expecting him to say something like, I didn't say that at all, why did you you know, it's, that's really pretty far from what I was thinking and, and saying. And I think there's been a real misunderstanding. They were imagining that he would go there. And his response was to say, oh, I can really see how you went there. I can really see how you were um, thinking that. And he responded to the question in a way which was completely kind to this questioner and also moved around in a way so that there was a real response to the question. And I was talking with my mother and she remembered that after ten, 10 years after the fact, never having thought about it since. That moment, of, that moment of kindness was there, remembered, and um, had a big impact that someone could actually carry that kind of kindness and have it be there in what might have been a challenging moment. I don't know whether that was for him, but that's, that's why we do this practice, so that we become more and more familiar with what really is our deeper nature, which for various reasons we're not always in touch with. 
You know, we know we know that. And so, a little bit later this evening, we'll go to the actual instructions. But I wanted to say a little bit more, just about the whole framework within which we do the practice, because we have um, really a special environment here. In a way, it's a protected environment. The deer and the turkeys, whom if you haven't met, you will meet soon. I, I think they know this, that we hear that the, the turkey and the deer act differently here than across the valley. There's some kind of energy here. It's a protected environment. And we really want to create a certain kind of um, support structure for this really opening process. There's a beautiful passage in, I think it was actually in um, some journals by the Catholic contemplative Thomas Merton, which is quite beautiful. It's about this... um, this way that we need to have an environment that is both connected with our deeper intentions and as safe as possible. This is what Thomas Merton said, talking about what brings out our deeper self. He talked about the inner self. He said, the inner self is precisely that self which cannot be tricked or manipulated by anyone. It is like a very shy, wild animal that never appears at all whenever an alien presence is at hand and comes out only when all is perfectly peaceful, in silence. When it is untroubled and alone, it cannot be lured by anyone or anything because it responds to no lure except that of divine freedom. And so I want to talk about the two main supports that we use, and and I'll those of you familiar with retreats will recognize these as the very traditional support structure of taking refuge and working with the ethical precepts, but I want to reframe these a little bit and really connect it more with our practice of loving kindness and do it in a little different way than we usually do on on other retreats. So typically, traditionally, as many of you know, we... uh, have as one of our support structures what's called taking refuge. And I could reframe that as saying that we remember our, really our deeper intentions. And we remember what's important for us. And that this provides a great support. Traditionally, this is the Buddha, by which we mean the... um, possibility of being free and awake, as well as, for many of us, the historical figure called the Buddha. We take refuge in the Dharma, which is really traditionally the teachings about how to come to freedom, and sometimes seen to be reality itself, the Dharma, the way things are. We take refuge or we, we look for support in reality, which is much, much better than the opposite of taking refuge in non-reality. <laughs> so, a little bit, sorry, it was 
getting to be a little bit of a subtle joke. It didn't quite come out quite right. Okay. Anyway, and then the, the third is that we take refuge in the Sangha, which is the community, the fellow practitioners. And I was connecting these with the um, Metta Sut, and I was thinking that first is that we really, I think what I'll do is I'll talk a little bit about these, and then I'll just ask us to sit for a moment and see what this means for you. So this, again, this first uh, aspect of support is to remember the Buddha as the fact of our own possibility of becoming free, of awakening. It's really our own, uh, our own wise heart, we might say. And, you know, it's the, these, these different lines in the, uh, in the text, for example, where it says, this ability to radiate kindness over the entire world to have this radiant heart, to, to cherish all living beings, to have a boundless heart. These are the qualities, uh, we might say, of an awake being or of a being that's unobstructed, whose heart and mind and wisdom are unobstructed. And this is what we, this is what we aspire towards. This can guide us. We can remember this. We can call this the Buddha or we can call it the awakened wise heart, whatever really resonates with you. So I'll invite us now just to sit with that aspiration, whatever that means for you, (coughs) just for a moment. And secondly, we take refuge in the Dharma or we look towards these uh, teachings on how to come to freedom. These teachings that uh, in the text really comprise the whole text. This is what should be done. These are the teachings on liberation. This is what we should, this is, this is what we should do. This is how we should be that if we want to open our hearts, open our minds, we wish well for others. We cultivate the kind heart. We bring, we take as our model, the mother protecting her only child with a boundless heart, that we train in this way. So again, I'll invite us to sit with this sense of finding support in the teachings and practices that help us to move towards that boundless heart, that wise heart. Again, whatever resonates with you in that way, let that be there for a moment. And then the last support is the support of each other. It's the support of the community. You know, that can mean different things. It's the community here 
of practitioners that when, you know, at three o'clock in the morning or three in the afternoon tomorrow, if you're a little tired, you see other people coming into the hall and they support you. We support each other. We can be inspired by each other here and at home. And ultimately, we can take the, this community of fellow practitioners ultimately to be the whole world. Just like that, that we, we, uh, we wish for all beings to be free to have these open hearts. So I'll invite us again just to sit with this sense of finding support in each other, in our fellow practitioners, in our community. Let's just sit with how that resonates for you just for a moment. The second kind of support is what we sometimes call the, the ethical guidelines. It's particularly this support structure which helps us to feel as safe as possible. We have uh, the rooms at Spirit Rock have always been unlocked. As I mentioned, the animals behave in a palpably different way here. We try to create an environment of safety for that inner self to come out for us to be able to open. And we, we, we make agreements that, helps, that help us to feel that possibility of opening. Traditionally, we take five ethical precepts which are all about non-harming. We take first the guideline or the precept to train in not hurting others, not taking uh, the life of another whether it's a human or um, an animal being, but particularly that we don't harm others. The second is that we don't take that which is not given. And the third through the fifth are about being as clear in our own uh, behavior in areas that sometimes are challenging, the areas of sexuality and speech and uh, using intoxicants. For a retreat, we simplify those last three by um, not doing any of them or coming close to any of them. <laughs> so we, so we, we do, uh, you know, we pretty much stay in our own, we stay with attention to our own minds and hearts, really. We actually, as the manager was saying, we actually try to cultivate this sense what, of what Stephen Batchelor, a, a Buddhist teacher, called being alone with others. It's this quality of aloneness and solitude with dear friends. It's an interesting combination that we, we give this powerful direct attention to our own minds and hearts. And we really don't give energy out towards others. We don't wave to people. We don't, we don't even so much look around. We stay kind of radically with our own solitude and our own practice while feeling the support of others. 
And so we, we can see that uh, the whole of the metta sutta is really about this, this care, this ethical care. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness. Let them be straightforward and gentle in speech. So here we're, not, we're, we're in silence, but we could also direct that to our inner speech. Let our inner speech be, be gentle to ourselves as much as possible. So we, we really make those agreements. So maybe I'll just go through each of those again and just have a slight pause for us, us to really take those in and let again, let them resonate with, with you as you as you understand them. First, the guideline, the training guideline of not harming others. Just let that sit with you for a moment. And you can make kind of an inner intention that I will abide by this guideline. Not to harm others. Not to take that which is not given. To be very careful with my sexual energy. To be with what we sometimes call noble silence, except for any moments of what we call functional speech. And then to have that sense of inner kind speech, our inner speech to ourselves being, being as kind as possible. And again, the last one, which may not be so necessary, but it's a traditional one. It's to be careful and for the context of this retreat to refrain from substances (coughs) which shift consciousness in ways that can be negative. and being part of the support structure for each other. We uh, support each other to go as deeply as possible. Thank you. We'll sit a little bit quietly and do the beginning parts of um, really this practice of 
bringing the mind to a, a relaxed sense of composure and safety using a blessing. Um, you know, this practice of using a blessing to bring the mind to stillness is not actually the, the, the instruction that the Buddha gave. The Buddha gave the instruction that we have on this piece of paper that we read together. He said, just do it. You know, when you read it to begin with, it says, just do it. This is the way we should do unto all beings, omitting none. Don't have any, just have a good heart on all beings. And I, you know, I sometimes, uh, because I love it so much, I, f- I feel sometimes a little bit embarrassed to think back to my first experiences with reading it and practicing with it 20 years ago and thinking to myself, cavalierly, I need to admit, this is all very well and good, but he's given this instruction to do this radical thing, to care for people without impartial friendliness, impartial goodwill. And he didn't say how, but he did say how. A thousand years later, in the Vasudhimaga, which is a commentary on what the Buddha taught, there's a graduated practice that says, okay, this is one way how. One way we could do it would be just to bring our attention to the breath and calm the mind down on the breath. Our wisdom would clarify, our goodwill would come out. Another way would be to think about our lives as practice fields. Visit, go in a public park and look at people taking care of each other and feel moved by the kindness of people towards one another. While you're here, I don't want us to forget to tell you the practice of watching the birds in the nests. You may have seen the nests over the, the, the restrooms that are just out. Did you see the rests? There's a, there are two restrooms just before you come in here. When you come in, look at the nests up there. Just up the stairway that goes up to uh, the, some of the uh, teacher rooms at the end of the corridor, there's a large nest of birds with instructions about how not to disturb them. There's a certain way in which I'm so pleased to see that because when these new buildings were built, the first year after, the birds started to build nests in those corners. And the caretakers, to begin with, were very dismayed about it because the birds are untidy, you know. They drop everything on the floor right there. And the caretakers, in their zeal to keep the land pristine and the area pristine, were doing things to shoo the birds away. And actually, the the birds were doing their nesting just at the time that we were teaching a metta retreat. And uh, uh, my colleague Sally Armstrong and I saw a caretaker on the way to the nest to, well, to discourage the nest. And I remember we both leaped up and ran after him and said, don't do that. So now I was pleased as anything today to arrive and find not only... Over the years, the treatment of the birds has first been to endure them. And now I find we're building them support platforms. We're doing all kinds of things. The bird, the bird sanctuary has really gone from tolerating the birds to really 
building them uh, nurseries, practically. So I'm very thrilled with it. And there are all kinds of instructions about don't bang the door, don't go anywhere near these, let the birds fledge, don't touch the nests. And, uh, it's, and I heard them outside of room three this evening. So I want to tell you, in the course of your three days here, make sure that you, as you're leaving, that you creep up that stairway and stand there a little bit because they're chirping. And if you look over, you see their little heads sticking out. And you see how good you feel when you see their little heads sticking out of a protected nest. And it's such a feeling in me of confirmation of that we're really good. We delight in the well-being of others. That our natural inclination is to say thrive, live, make it. We're thrilled when stories come out where somebody thrives and lives and triumphs. Really what we do is we train the mind by saying blessing phrases because that's the natural inclination of the heart. And say, okay, we'll just start the motor. And it really brings the mind to a place of happiness. And from that place of happiness, we're really confirmed and reconfirmed in the understanding that benevolence is one's own safest refuge. I'm never more comfortable than when I am really feeling my own good heart. So there, are, there are on, on the other sheet that you picked out outside, you don't need to look at it, I'll just tell you about it. On one side of the sheet, there are the, blessing, the, the benefits that accrue. Uh, that you may have read that. Did you read that? Say it with me, it's so fun. Before we go to bed, it'll make you happy. You don't have to look at it. Say it with me, call and response. People who practice metta, sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. Who doesn't want that? Really. You know, I love that. My teacher, when I began to practice, before she told me any blessings to make for other people, she said, commit those to memory. Just say them to yourself over and over again until you have them memorized. So I went back to my room and I learned them right away. And I said them over and over and I got in a really great mood. And, and I thought, well, they're the magic of the blessings. Well, a little bit, but the magic is that when I remind myself of how my life might be and the potential of a human being's freedom, liberated mind, I get really pleased. And what's more, the act of memorizing and the act of saying over and over and over again pushes out everything extra from the mind and all the enmity and all the misgivings and all the fixed views, they just disappear. There's no room for it because the mind is filled up with blessings for myself and with expectations for myself. And so, and immediately, there's a kind of mini-liberation that lasts for a while. It's a wonderful thing. So I invite you to do that tonight. For the last five minutes that we're together, I invite you to try the simplest of blessings. 
on when tomorrow when you have time and you look at the back of the sheet you'll see that there's a there's one that says traditional from the Pali so this is a full disclosure I learned them not in Pali but that traditional phrasing may I be free of danger may I be have mental happiness when I have, may I have physical happiness may I have ease of well-being and I didn't get a choice. My teacher said, say that. So I said it over and over and over and over and over again. I didn't actually get it what mental happiness. We don't normally say that, may you have mental happiness. But I kind of got the hang of it. I mean, you can sort of imagine physical happiness. You can sort of imagine free of danger. I can definitely imagine. So I said that over and over again. Who knows how many thousands of times I said it over and over again. For quite a few years, and then over the years, because we, here we are in the West and people didn't like saying arcane phrases so much, we began to say things that were easier, like, may I feel safe, may I feel contented, may I feel strong, may I live with ease, which is really what I do mostly now in my own practice and what I teach mostly in my own practice because I like that, because each of those Uh, invocations and blessings are things that I can feel in my body. May I feel safe. If I took some time now, I could feel that in me. May I feel contented. I could feel that in me. May I feel strong. I usually sit up a little taller when I say that. May I live with ease. So I like that very much. It's been the practice I've been doing for some years. And it's mostly what I teach people because it's easy, it's simple, it's not hard to learn. And because each of those first three phrases resonates in your mind and body. The fourth is a little bit more open and vague, but that's fine with me. And the full disclosure is when I'm flying in an airplane suddenly and it suddenly starts to bump around and the pilot hasn't said, you know, we're about to encounter some air like that. What do they call it? Uh, a mountain wave, if you're going over the mountains or over the Rockies or unexpected turbulence. If I don't know about it and all of a sudden my plane goes da 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 I think to myself, may I be free of danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, because it's what I ground into my neurons on this earliest bedrock level. It's like saying your prayers in French and in German, if you learn them in French or German to begin with. So that's a full disclosure, but mostly in my daily practice, may I feel safe, may I feel contented, may I feel strong, may I live with ease. And I wait, I don't rush. I say each one, and I try to feel it in my body. So I'd like you, we have this short time, just three days. For these three days, try to do those phrases. And if you have phrases that you've been saying, and they are what is your practice, okay. If you're just starting, use that and try to feel them. May I feel safe. May I feel contented. May I feel strong. May I live with ease. Let's sit three minutes, not five.
We'll see you tomorrow morning at uh, 6.30 in the morning for the wake-up. And I'll also invite you to begin even now to practice the way we practice on retreat, which is more or less to do it all the time. That even as we, some of us may go back now to our rooms, and you're welcome to stay in the hall some, but as we go back into our rooms, we can actually keep the phrases going. You wake up at six. First or second thought could be, let's get the phrases going. You know, can work with the loving kindness because it's the idea that while we're here, this is really what we're doing. And so we'll invite you even now as you continue to um, let the phrases um, occur. If your mind goes elsewhere, you can just come back, but to do it in a, a light and gentle way. And then when you wake up tomorrow morning, can just really start with them. You don't have to wait till you come in the hall. And we'll, we'll give some further refinement and details, but we'll see that we actually bring the spirit of loving kindness and the practice into the meals and into everything we do here. And in doing so, we develop further in concentration, which is really crucial for the deepening process. So we just keep coming back and don't worry how we're doing. Always start freshly, over and over. That's what we do. Have a great rest and see you um, tomorrow morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.